You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to Encyclopedia on a rather sunny but chilly Sunday afternoon. I've been uh, very busily packing um, for moving house, but um, <coughs> I don't know why I'm sharing that with you. It is 3CR Radiothon on right now, uh, and next week will be our special Radiothon show, and we're planning a bit of a uh, uh, a panel lineup uh, with a number of experts to take questions uh, that might be niggling at the back of your mind. Uh, so if you do have any questions early, please write them down. In fact, you can get in contact with us by heading to 3cr.org.au, uh, following the links to the Encyclopedia program page and jumping on uh, our Facebook or our Twitter, or you can send us an email. Uh, any questions that you might have related to uh, broad drug issues, we will uh, hopefully have somebody that has a bit of a legal background, somebody with a bit of a harm reduction background, some uh, people that work in health uh, and also in policy. So hopefully we'll be able to answer any question that comes across our plate. And uh, what a week it's been this week. Uh, last night, or yesterday, uh, Above and Beyond was in Sydney. It was, uh, well, Above and Beyond are a, a band and or a group, um, and they were in Sydney. They were in Melbourne on Friday night. The uh, Sniffer Dogs were out, but uh, it was a relatively normal sort of Sniffer Dog uh, operation for Melbourne. Um, and uh, although uh, it was still problematic, the program is problematic, it's not as problematic as what's now uh, been decided as policy in Sydney. And um, in Sydney, the police have come out and said that uh, last week they said that they're going to deny entry to anybody uh, who a dog had a uh, detection on. So that's the dog coming up and uh, doing one of several things that seems to be uh, an indication, uh, whether it's sitting down or pointing at you or whatever it is, uh, standing next to you for a long time. Uh, And if that happened uh, and you were searched and no drugs were found... It didn't matter. They were going to deny you entry to the event anyway. And um, that was what was said was going to happen. And that is exactly what happened, according to Sniffoff. Sniffoff run out of uh, Greens MP in New South Wales, David Shoebridge's office. And it's a campaign against the Sniffer Dogs in New South Wales. They're much more um, prevalent in New South Wales. Even if you're catching public transport, you might run into a Sniffer Dog at a train station. Um, You might run into them at one of the events. And sometimes they even go through uh, venues so you might be sitting down at your table and a sniffer dog might be at your crotch sniffing away just in case you know you have some drugs on you and uh, we've got to stop that Uh, so people were refused entry uh, according to sniff off last night to the event uh, and there are a number of comments on the sniff off Facebook page we were hoping to get in contact with them today but it has been a rather busy weekend only just happened um, last night you can see a lot of it on Facebook but we will catch up with them uh, over the week and be following that story over the week uh, to find out you know, exactly what's gone down. Oh, actually, uh, I have a Sydney Olympic Park banning notice. Somebody has just put up a, uh, a picture of it, so I'll just have a quick read here. Um, I, whoever it was, being an authorised officer of the Sydney Olympic Park Authority... Um, do hereby revoke any expressed or implied license allowing you to enter or remain upon the premises known as Sydney Olympic Park for six months. Uh, 
<laughs> and I, I don't know what it's for. This is just a, a notice uh, that had been handed to somebody. Um, that's pretty interesting. So yeah, uh, so some interesting escalation of the um, uh, of the operation, and also an interesting sort of change in the justice process, where now a dog is apparently judge, juror, and executor of function. So we don't need to worry about having a a judicial system anymore. I suppose we can just get dogs to work out crimes, and if a dog makes uh, any kind of anything whatsoever. And, and we agree with that dog because there's always that, you know, a, 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 the handler has to agree with the dog. Um, then, um, but I mean, we're solving crime everywhere. Maybe that's a solution for all those uh, uh, groups that are uh, popping up around Victoria that are so upset about uh, apparently a, a crime wave that's going on, even though uh, crime statistics don't seem to uh, correlate that. Uh, anyway, getting carried away. It's time for some news. And psychedelia news of the week. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ICE use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatisation of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use, even when they're experiencing some issues, so they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from family members or people at work or or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics uh, and will just say oh well then the the government are not looking after us and therefore it's seen as a law and order issue rather than a a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. First to New Zealand, uh, where the spinoff.co.nz uh, has published a piece from a uh, long-term, long-time uh, drug drug policy reform activist, Julian Burnside. Stop blaming banned drugs for the devastation caused by prohibition. He says this sharp distinction between state-approved and state-banned drugs has no scientific or pharmacological foundation to support it. What we commonly refer to as drugs or narcotics are simply a list of substances arbitrarily prohibited for political reasons. And um, Julian, uh, you can find him on Twitter and uh, he's got a number of uh, articles as well. He has been uh, arguing against prohibition for a number of years. Uh, Julian Buchanan, sorry, not Burnside, Julian Buchanan, that's B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N, and uh, he's talking about a number of uh, um, initiatives or, or reforms that have been made in New Zealand over the past 10 years or so uh, that, that have not uh, gone against the sort of status quo of prohibition as the assumed end response to uh, a drug issue, um, but all of these policies have uh, caused more problems because they have never really looked at whether or not prohibition is the best way to deal with the problems that they say they're dealing with. Uh, also in the studio, sorry, I should have introduced you in, <laughs> in the first bracket there. Emily uh, is sitting uh, opposite me. Emily will be, um, well, I mean, you were on a show a couple of weeks ago and you'll be uh, joining a few more in the future. Uh, Ash overseas in um, Amsterdam at the moment, uh, in, in Utrecht, I, I believe. Um, but Emily, have you got some news for us this morning? Um, Afternoon. Yes, I... I'm not sure how new it is, but it's kind of just the continuance of the discussion of pill testing in the UK. 
Um, so I think it was last week festival festival announced that they would be um, doing front of house pill testing and then there's just been some more discussion around it. Um, Freddie Fellows, the founder of Secret Garden Party, um, is an advocate for pill testing and um, was just discussing that <clears throat> uh, in one of the, uh, one of his festivals they came across someone who was selling ecstasy that was 100% concrete um, and that 18% of people who bought the drugs um, that they oh, for testing um, then chose to bin them um, and also a case of anti-malaria drugs being powdered up and sold as cocaine. <laughs> Some of those anti-malaria drugs having pretty bizarre psychoactive effects as well, like they kind of make you a bit loopy or something. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, oh, the, uh, the, the, the US is uh, uh, really fighting against the opioid crisis. Donald Trump is onto it, so we can all yay. Uh, and he's done that by releasing a whole bunch of just say no opi- uh, opioid ads, um, which is apparently going to solve everything. And these, uh, these ads that were a, a collaboration between the White House and a group that... Uh, a group that's called, I think, Know the Truth Foundation, and that just sounds sounds dodgy. Somebody tells you that they are the ones that know the truth, they're probably going to be propagandists of some kind. <laughs> and there's a whole series of these videos, and, and basically the videos consist of uh, somebody who's apparently in the midst of an opioid addiction, uh, purposefully injuring them in horrific ways. So we've got somebody who, like, slams their arm, breaking their arm into a, into a door. Um, I think, what was this one? Here, we'll just have a, have a quick look. First yeah. time I tried bike, and it was laying around my mom's house. And I kept taking them whenever I could get them. I didn't know they'd be this addicted. I didn't know how far I'd go to get more. Oh, oh yeah, and then somebody calls my phone, so I got... Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, that was him slamming his arm into a door. So that's the uh, that's the level of uh, quality of ad that uh, they have going on. Apparently, that's going to solve the opioid crisis in the US, so no need to worry anymore. Um, and that was a multi-million dollar advertising campaign as well. So, uh, yeah, US solving problems. I'm sure that everyone on opiates wants to slam their arm in a door. <laughs> yeah, that seems like the thing to do. I suppose that the point they're trying to make is, oh... Because it, it's a like medication, people are doing absurd things to get the medication. But oh, and according to the group, the the um, uh, what were they called, the Truth Project or Foundation or whatever they're called, um, they all the stories are true. Apparently, they're all they they went and spoke to a whole bunch of people, and they're all true. Um, so I I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder should I be making light of such ridiculous ads? I think the problem I have is this kind of shock advertising to shock people into doing the right thing doesn't work. It's sort of the equivalent of the the parent hitting the child when it does something wrong. That's what it sort of seems like, and I'm not a fan of that. (laughs) So... Uh, any more news stories? Uh, no. No? No, that's right. I've got, um, <laughs> there was a particularly entertaining one. Not so much news as um, some satire from SBS Viceland, um, who did a, a short video. It's up on the Encyclopedia Facebook page, um, taking, uh, well and truly taking the piss out of the uh, Sniffer Dog find, uh, find uh, program. Um, Sniffer Dogs will find it, whether it's there or not, is the uh, is the tagline there. Um a brilliant piece in nymag.com uh, by a guy, a writer called Andrew Sullivan, why we should say yes to drugs. Uh, and uh, controversial uh, uh, headline, I guess, but um, th- the whole point that he's trying to make is that uh, there are a number of uh, very useful things that uh, and all the different substances can do. If you, st- if you sort of... Um, 
pull apart this term drugs because it's very loaded and we think of certain kinds of drugs as we were talking about before um, with that term. If you pull it apart uh, and you look at each individual substance, all of these different things have different um, purposes. We can use them for different uh, different things. They might have uh, medical capabilities or they might um, be useful in some other way. And he was specifically talking about um, psychedelic substances and the resurgence of research into psychedelics uh, for a variety of things, uh, and that was that was an excellent piece. Um, there are there is a bit more um, on the Encyclopedia Facebook page if you want to go and have a read. But I've got a couple of interviews that I want to get to quickly this afternoon. Uh, later on, we're going to be hearing from uh, virtual reality uh, artist. Uh, as a psychedelic virtual reality artist, Roger Essig, and uh, also going to be hearing shortly from Dr. Manuel Cardoso. And Dr. Manuel is a Portuguese uh, uh, bureaucrat, I guess. He works for the uh, institution which looks after Portugal's decriminalised drug uh, regime, essentially. So we're going to be catching up with him shortly. So if if it's something that you're not quite sure you know that much about or you're not quite sure what uh, what decriminalisation means, uh, please have a listen because we go through all of that. Uh, But first up, brand new uh, from Spoonbill. This is... Oh, can I find it? Very disorganised. That's what happens when your house turns into a uh, boxes everywhere. It's just chaos. This is Spoonbill with Dirty Car on Encyclopedia. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for your mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for because this DJ gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles in your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and 3CR.org.au. And what a week for drug policy it has been this week. On uh, Tuesday evening up in Sydney, uh, there was an event that was held by the Uniting Church uh, in combination with Unharm in New South Wales, a uh, drug law reform organisation, with around 900 people turning up on quite a rainy night in Sydney to see, uh, well, to see Dr Manuel Cardoso and... um, I'm going to introduce him now. Deputy Director of the Portuguese General Directorate for Intervention on Addictive Behaviours and Dependencies, Dr. Manuel Cardoso from Portugal, is on the line with us now. Welcome to the program, Manuel. Hello. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you for uh, being here in Australia. I mean, you've just been in Sydney. And um, how was the event the other night? Did you feel well received? Yeah, pretty well. But uh, you have to to be great to another. They invite me to the the conference they have, they have now. I think um, they are fantastic inviting me. And yes, in that um, in that conference uh, Tuesday was fantastic. The reception and way the people are interested in the in our policy. Yes. 
So it was 2001, 17 years ago, that Portugal decriminalised use and possession of all drugs. No caveats, no this drug or that drug can remain prohibited, nothing like that. Also that year was the same year that Sydney opened its first medically supervised injecting centre, uh, which is run by the Uniting Church in uh, in New South Wales. And um, uh, my understanding is that the Uniting uh, Church Synod has given a recommendation to Uniting Church to support a campaign to decriminalise all drugs in much the same way as Portugal in both New South Wales and the ACT. So it's it's uh, quite some synchronicities and um, very good to have you here. And I understand you also went and saw the Sydney Medically Supervised Injecting Centre because there are none in Portugal. You, yeah, in Portugal we have that uh, capacity, that possibility. After the criminalisation, um, uh, we create and publish the law that allows uh, to have uh, this kind of facilities, as we have street teams and uh, shelters and um, other supportive programs, projects and structures to help these uh, these people. But what happened is uh, we don't found a prop a moment um, in which we uh, have the same uh, will between. Uh, the municipalities that um, have to agree with uh, the, the opening of uh, uh, such kind of uh, facilities, and uh, our uh, our uh, uh, directorate at uh, at that time was a, a, an institute, and we found other ways to help the people. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the the overdoses and the infection of diseases. Um, decreases a lot since 2001. A lot means that, uh, for example, at that time, uh, 60 or 56 percent of the all the infected each year was addicts, and now addicts in the infected in the infected with HIV each year represents three percent. So, um, from uh, 60. Uh, to three percent, overdoses are decreases also decreases also. So uh, we found other ways, and maybe um, this year could be a year to to open a, a injecting room in Portugal. We have uh, have been discussing this because we have uh, people's uh, people uh, oldest and consuming in the street could be a good help to them to consume. But our the, the way we look to these facilities and these people and also to arm reduction is not to uh, only support people and help them to reduce the, the, the risk of their consumption, but also try to put them out of that consumption, help them to stop, uh, send them to treatment or give treatment to, to if needed to them, give also the possibility to uh, reintegrate them in the society. So we have a, 
uh, a comprehensive approach of the needs of these people to help them to return to uh, full dignity and uh, without uh, stigma also. And this is the most important part of the Portugal, uh, the Portuguese decriminalisation uh, policy. Yeah, the, but the... I, let, me, let, let me say one thing that I could be understand not very well. Oh. When we, uh, we decriminalised the use and possession of drugs, but the consumption and possession is not permitted. Uh, it's a, a, an administrative offence. It's not a crime. N nobody goes to prison. But if the police uh, found someone consuming, they can... Uh, make a report and send this, uh, this individual to a commission to be, um, to be interviewed, to, be, uh, um, to discuss, to identify what's the risk of their consumption and to try to help them. So it's not, it's not a legalization, it's decriminalizing, saying it's not anymore a crime, you don't go to jail, but it's not permitted to continue uh, the, the consumption. And this, this, I mean, that is a point. Thank you for making that, um, Manuel, because that is a point that uh, people often get stuck on. Uh, we recently had a wide-ranging inquiry into our drug laws here in, in Victoria, um, and, and one of the recommendations was to explore what they were calling uh, depenalisation, and the reason why, because we've, we've spoken to a number of the politicians who were uh, who made up that uh, panel who were doing the inquiry, the reason why was because there's a lot of confusion in the community and even among politicians about what exactly decriminalisation is, and that's why we're talking to you today because yeah. it's decriminalisation, which doesn't mean that there aren't still uh, consequences for these actions, um, just like speeding um, for, for yeah. people. Yeah, just like speeding fines or other kinds of uh, penalties of, of yeah. that nature, yeah. there is still an administrative process. Now, yeah. uh, maybe we can run through exactly what happens. Let's say I'm uh, somebody who's uh, out at a park and I've decided I'm going to smoke a, a massive joint and uh, the police uh, notice this and uh, they come over. What, what happens to me now? You send, you send this, uh, this uh, person, this guy, to the debt commission, and when the, the, um, he goes to the commission, he's received by the commission. In the commission, they have a, a multidisciplinary team with uh, um, many uh, specialists that uh, ask them and try to identify the risk of the consumption they have. If it's a low risk, a moderate risk, or high risk, or if he is a dependent. And after that, um, they... Uh, in, in, the commission decide what to what to do not uh, the idea is not um, make a punishment of punish, um, uh, a punishment of these these uh, people but help them if they need treatment they send them to this treatment if not the idea is counseling is motivation to stop consumption or even if uh, it's only one consumption, one uh, experiment, they uh, go home only uh, with uh, an advertisement uh, or some, uh, something, like, something like that, saying it's not permitted, we can't do it again, and so. But the idea is helping 
not punishing. And uh, they, uh, uh, they have a process. It's not a criminal process. It, this, uh, this uh, entity, this commission, uh, are in, within the Ministry of Health. Uh, and uh, after, if no, um, if, if these people are not uh, catched for the police or found for the police concerning other time, in five years, the process is erased, or the, the file is erased, and n nothing never goes to the, the, the criminal process, never. But in that database is also erased. And uh, if someone uh, went to uh, a commission te uh, 10 years ago, I can't know at the moment because I have any information about that. It's erased. So there, there would be a, a big difference if um, if I was in this park smoking this joint and uh, it was the, the fifth time that the police have caught me consuming various drugs in a public place in the middle of yeah. a weekday yeah. when maybe I should be uh, with family or at workplace or, or doing something like that as compared to if I were caught, say, after work and I just happened to be walking through a park and was caught first offence um, and, uh, you know, I was coming home from my work and uh, just thought that I, I would have one and and uh, went about yeah, my day. Yeah, so it would yeah. be a different process. Yeah. First, you uh, never uh, uh, are arrested because of that. Um, you are notified. You are, uh, and, and the, the report is uh, sent to the, the commission, and you have uh, 72 hours to present yourself. Uh, you, you make an appointment in the commission, and uh, you go there to um, to do or to to discuss with the commission. As I said, the commission of the the technical team, and the idea is always help you and uh, try to inform you about uh, what happened, the risks you have concerning, and so on. So, uh, I can say you also that uh, uh, over a research we made uh, two years ago, 75% of the, the people who went to the, that commission uh, changed their behaviors in Portugal. That's so, huge. Uh, uh, and things uh, in a better way, of course. They or stop or reduce consumption or reduce uh, the risk. Even the lifestyle, 60% change the lifestyle. And another, another uh, number I think it's important to say also is the, the presentation to the commission is not mandatory. If you don't go at all, um, the police could try uh, a second or a third uh, time send you back uh, to the commission. But if you don't go anyway, you are not penalized by that. But uh, saying so, I have to say also that 97% of those who are invited to go to the commission, are uh, uh, invited by the police to go to the commission, 
they went to the commission and um, completed the process, or more or less they, they accept, and they went there once or two uh, until the process is closed. So uh, even the process works without a mandatory, uh, an obligation clearly uh, clear to, be, to, to go to the commission. You have to go, but if you don't go, you don't go to prison, or you don't have any other penalty or any kind of penalty. There's a lot of uh, dignity uh, afforded to people in this program that we often don't see in our own drug policies uh, here in Australia, which, um, I, I mean, it, it's something that everybody deserves, but one of the one of the biggest fears that's thrown out by organisations who oppose any change to drug policy uh, is that if, if we if we change things in a way like, uh, like how Portugal has, that it sends the wrong message to people. But by the figures that you have just cited, uh, it sounds like um, the message that's being sent is we respect you um, and we understand, we will help you maintain your dignity and we want to help you. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very different message than, oh, you're free to take whatever drugs you want and screw with your life, which seems to be the suggestion by some of these groups. But how does Portugal compare to other parts of Europe over the time, the nearly 20 years that this um, decriminalisation policy has been in operation? OK, um, you are right, the message. Uh, and uh, when, uh, in our first strategy in 1999, we um, had uh, and uh, still have two principles that we consider main principles. One is uh, humanism and the second pragmatism. Uh, thinking about humanism uh, is looking to these people as uh, uh, persons, individuals, with full rights, like um, the others, like us, like uh, anybody, uh, to be looked, to be uh, treated as uh, needed of, if, if addict, uh, needing treatment, so will full dignity. And the pragmatism is to see the, the process and, the, and the, the way to help these people without any preconceived ideas. Look, uh, the, the needs that people have to be out and try out uh, uh, solving uh, that, uh, that need. You ask me uh, about how you, uh, we score uh, or relating with uh, the, uh, the other European countries. I think uh, the best example we uh, may have is uh, in Europe, uh, we have a, a survey at 16 years old called ESPAD. I don't remember exactly to, to, to say in full. Uh, it's something uh, European school survey uh, at 16 years old, 16 years old. And we always scored uh, for all consumptions, uh, including cannabis, uh, uh, amphetamines or, or ecstasies, we score in the bottom of the of the the scale. Um, and when, when I say in the bottom, in the the, the quarter uh, part of the bottom, in many cases, the last one. 
and uh, heroin and the other uh, and cocaine is, is the same. So, in fact, we uh, also had fear at the moment that we can uh, have an increase of consumption, uh, a clear increase in cons consumption, but that doesn't happen at all. I, I have to be clear on that. Mm. We have reduced all the problems, and the, the consumption, including the recreational consumption, consumption don't uh, didn't increase in uh, in a way so significant that uh, we can uh, understand in the in the um, in the surveys. In my point of view, we have uh, a, a stabilization, and uh, in youth, the the last survey, things are better than in 2012, and you have 20 years. So, and uh, and the, the the prevalence of consumption has increasing and decreasing a little bit. Uh, each survey we have for since uh, since 2001. So what's what's next on the horizon for Portuguese drug policy? I, I mean, I assume there's ongoing discussions about how well this policy is working and about uh, other things that are happening in other parts of the world, um, legalisation in parts of the US, Canada's talking about it, uh, Uruguay has legalised fully and there are other other parts of the world that are also looking at legalisation of cannabis and there's a lot of talk um, about all sorts of other options for uh, regulating drugs. What, what are the discussions going on right now in Portugal? Yeah, in Portugal, uh, only we have, we have a, a proposal in the parliament to legalize the therapeutic use of cannabis. Uh, we are discussing it. And um, about uh, other movements, uh, we, we, we feel very comfortable with our policy. And we are watching what happened, as you said, in uh, Uruguay or United uh, United, um, United States, uh, because uh, we have to see that we are within the in, uh, international conventions about uh, drugs. Um, now, at, at the first time, at, uh, um, in the first four years uh, after the the, the criminalization. The United Nations uh, went to Portugal to to understand and to make reports, trying to understand if our policy was against the conventions. And then in 99, uh, in 2005, 2009, they uh, produced a report saying that we are within the the. the the limits of the, con the conventions, and even uh, two years ago, we uh, received a message saying that uh, uh, Portuguese model is a, a good practice within the, the United Nations Convention. So, uh, and and uh, maybe an example to follow. And what happened, in fact, is that many countries. Not only I was invited to come here to to. to present our model to talk about it, but uh, also Canada, Norway, uh, uh, Ireland, uh, many countries in Europe and uh, all around the world, we are invited to go and to explain what happened. So um, people are curious to understand 
uh, it's difficult to explain to uh, to, our, to you, for instance, the difference you, we have uh, between criminalize and say decriminalize, it's not the same mm. that depenalize. It's real difficult because culturally we have different ways uh, to, to, to deal with. Uh, but the, the idea is try to pass the message uh, the message is what 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 we are doing and the, the way we are doing it at the same time the results we have and we have even now and you, you come with such important information. Thank you for coming to Australia and, and speaking okay. uh, at the event on Tuesday night with Unharm and Uniting That's my pleasure. and at the conference. Thank you very much, Manuel. Okay. You were hearing the voice of Dr. Manuel Cardoso from Portugal where he is the Deputy Director of the Portuguese General Directorate for Intervention on Addictive Behaviours and Dependencies, which is the agency uh, which looks after people who have been found to be taking drugs um, or possessing a small amount of drugs. Um, and rather than receiving a criminal penalty, they go through this agency and through a process that they have, which treats people with dignity and looks to help those with problems rather than punish them. Uh, Dr. Manuel Cardoso spoke on Tuesday evening at a uniting and unharm drug law reform event with uh, over 900 people or around 900 people were meant to uh, be there uh, on a very rainy Sydney night. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio. 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing Strong Jabaluka 20 Years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net, a 3CR supporter. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal. You have to try very hard not to have fun on a push bike. Yarrabug, a show of bad bikes. Get on your bike. Riding them. Sit on the seat. Fixing them. Push your feet on the pedal. Loving them. And ride all around. Mondays, 10 a.m. to 10.30 here on 3CR. Push your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for your mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for because this day gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles and your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, uh, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3CR.org.au. On the phone now with Roger Essig. He's a psychedelic virtual reality artist and, uh, uh, well, Roger, you do you get out up to all sorts of sort of artistic projects. I also see that you go and, um, uh, what's that, what's it called when you go and search for gems in the forest? 
Oh yeah, prospect. so yeah, looking for gold and um, and gems as well. So yeah. I want to do something creative with them, uh, with photo- photography. So. So lots yes, of lots of things. side project, yeah. And on Tuesday evening, you were a uh, guest speaker at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Fed Square as part of their Alice in Wonderland exhibition. And you're specifically talking about um, what, I mean, many of, it, many of us have probably uh, thought of, suspected, wondered about, and it feels like a bit of a mythology because I don't know enough about how it all works with Lewis Carroll and whether or not he had psychedelic influence, but... Uh, it's something that gets associated with Alice in Wonderland regardless. And you, you were talking a little bit about that. So tell us about this uh, event at Acme. So it's, yeah, it was a surprising email. I got contacted uh, several months ago and it was about a Vice article that uh, was written up on me uh, about my uh, virtual reality experiences that I developed for um, trying to recreate the DMT experience. And so I got an email. They thought that I'd be an interesting person to have on their panel. And uh, so I got researching uh, Lewis Carroll and I couldn't really find any like concrete information or evidence that he did any type of drug, really. So mm. I wanted to go in not claiming that he did, but trying to work out a way that I could link him to um, what was going on at the time in um, in 19th century England, so, yeah, that's and where my research led me. So, we, first of all, for a little context for the listener, in 19th century England, um, there, there were plenty of drugs going about. There were some obscure uh, sort of psychedelic-type substances uh, that seemed to go around certain circles. A lot of the sort of exploratory um, circles uh, did have some drug experimentation. But drugs weren't quite thought of in the same way that we think of them now. Prohibition didn't exist as it exists now. Um, and I understand Lewis Carroll, whose name real name, I can't remember, he's got a, another name, but wasn't he... Uh, Charles. Charles. Charles Dodgson. Thank you. Uh, wasn't he um, a uh, like a son of a preacher or a church person? Was he going to be a churchy person himself or something like that? Yeah, so, yeah, he, a, a part, as far as I'm aware, because uh, I kind of didn't go too deep into that side of things, his, his uh, history, uh, but as far as I, am, am I aware, he... Uh, his father was in that area, and to get into the uh, his position at the, uh, the the teaching place, he had to be a uh, a pastor or something like that. Right. So, <laughs> so, so we know he had know some exactly. religious yeah. affiliations, but then uh, look, we could probably make some links with uh, psychedelics and religious imagery and, and and type thinking as well. But what what did you manage to? What are the links that you managed to find? How does the psychedelic yeah. world connect with Alice in Wonderland. So, yeah, I, I read that he was an avid reader of Thomas de Quincey, and Thomas de Quincey uh, famously wrote uh, in, uh, The Confessions of an English Opium Eater, where he mm. describes in detail uh, his dream states and uh, horrible experiences or nightmare-type visions that he had. So, and also in other areas... Uh, Lewis Carroll was a photographer and um, he definitely photographed people that um, had associations with opium. So uh, that was my angle, the the opium connection, because I didn't really look into any other drugs from that era. Um, And I was quite surprised to know how commonplace opium was and that people could have hallucinatory experiences from it. Not being a a traditional, well, not being a known psychedelic, which 
was kind of interesting. Well, I mean, it's funny with this word psychedelic, we, we sort of associate it with a certain class of, um, of substances, but um, nearly, nearly every psychoactive substance, uh, I mean, just by the nature of what they do, they can do uh, all sorts of things. And people often speak of uh, strange other worlds. I, I think even H.R. Uh, Geiger, who, who uh, famously did the, the Alien from Aliens, wasn't he inspired by opium visions as well? I mean, this is a side note, but I, I think he... Oh, well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not too sure. I think there was some inspiration. I'd, I'd probably have to double-check that. But yeah, there, are definitely, there are definitely strange and odd worlds sitting beneath the opium haze. Yes, and the, uh, like, as a, you know, like a young adult, uh, you know, teenager, I always heard the, the term chasing the dragon. I thought, oh, it must be a, a vision that they see, a common vision. Uh, but apparently it, the smoke, they chase the smoke as it rises, as they're smoking it. But then wow. again, uh, having looked into it, there were sort of reptilian creatures that people saw, um, specifically Thomas de Quincy. And I did read up on other reports that um, this guy, he saw a, a caterpillar, no, a centipede crawling up his leg with chains on it, which was kind of a interesting... Well, I mean... Because, you know, it, it sort of ties back into Alice in Wonderland seeing strange insects and creatures and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. What about um, some of the other imagery and, and maybe themes that are uh, throughout uh, Alice in Wonderland? Because, uh, I mean... It, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, specifically, what interests me was the cat, the Cheshire cat grinning. Um, and I, I'll just read a little quote here. Uh, here it is. When she noticed a curious appar- uh, appearance in the air, it puzzled her very much at first, but after watching it, for a minute or two, she made it out to be a grin, and she said to herself, it's the Cheshire Cat. So that's a vision that she's seeing in the air for literally two minutes. Mm. Um, and I looked into uh, the uh, supposed uh, symptom of um, was a certain type of migraine that uh, yes. Lewis Carroll um, reportedly had, and... Yeah, you see these curves and these these funny shapes in the air that can last several minutes. They get progressively wor- uh, worse as the headache develops. So I thought that was an interesting tie-in too. Well, I mean, that's one of the uh, one, one of the things that's brought up by um, uh, neurologist Oliver Sacks in in many of oh, yeah. his works. He he uh, works with people who suffer from um, all sorts of sort of uh, neural conditions, whether they've had a brain uh, damage of some kind or uh, maybe a disease or something that's eaten away at part of their brain, and they, and they get sort of strange things going on um, that sometimes are analogous to the kinds of uh, visions or uh, thought streams that happen under the influence of various psychoactive substances. So maybe uh, there was something going on with, uh, with Lewis um, that uh, w- was, was pushing him into a space that many of us recognise as a drug space, but it's actually uh, a space that was um, just his brain doing odd things, doing strange gymnastics. Sure, sure. yeah, I definitely want to read more of Oliver Sacks' work. Um very interesting guy. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that was my angle. I was on a panel with academics, so I wanted to not make the, the, the straight-out claim that, you know, the mushroom connection and, and all that. I didn't want to be totally obvious. I wanted to come in basically saying stuff that they weren't expecting me to say. So yeah. I, I actually mentioned or into it. I mentioned that, you know, why did Thomas de Quincey see reptil- reptilians? And he said he saw, like, horrendous birds, snakes, and a crocodile uh, so these are sort of predatory animals and I was thinking that maybe in the hypogogia sort of, or hypogogia imagery uh, 
patterns are seen and that may stimulate a part of the brain that reacts to how we've evolved to see snake skin in bushland uh, or in, in densely grassed areas. Mm. We only need to see a small percentage of a snake to actually react. Even if it's in your periphery, uh, humans can, like, they'll jump out of the way and then then they'll see it's a snake. Like, it's almost like an instinctual reaction. So that was my link uh, into Thomas de Quincey seeing, you know, predator visions. And mm. then perhaps Lewis Carroll was inspired by reading some of that. How how did the audience receive this um, this psychoactive take on Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, well, the, in the question time afterwards, there wasn't any specific questions about the psychedelic angle, but uh, lucid dreaming did get mentioned in my uh, bio, I guess, because I, I talk about that, um, or I, I I like talking about that, so I mentioned that in my bio, and so I, a question got asked about that, so that was fun actually talking specifically about lucid dreaming that was sort of an unexpected thing uh but definitely um afterwards i brought my virtual reality portable um dmt experience and a, a few people lined up and talked about that and i was throwing a few different people different types of people in my experience so that was fun uh, tell us a little bit about what you've got going on in the in the virtual reality goggles uh, once somebody dons them. What's what's happening? What what is a DMT visual for those that aren't uh, familiar? Well, I like explaining it like being in in uh, everything moving, living opal basically, or like it's like a three hundred and sixty degree kaleidoscope. And my uh, comment is, it's like. A, literally five seconds worth of a peak of a DMT experience. <laughs> uh, and people can, people actually report reported back that they saw faces developing in all these chaotic patterns, which is kind of the idea. Let the, uh, the user make their own connections with faces and creatures that may or may not be there. Uh, you're on Facebook as the Psychedelic Art of Roger Anthony Essig, which people sure. can find the page of. Uh, is there anywhere else where people can go to find your work? Uh, YouTube, Roger Essig. So it's R-O-G-E-R-E-S-S-I-G. Um, oh, yeah, just search on Google my well, name and stuff will come up. Excellent. We'll make sure to share those uh, on the Encyclopedia Facebook as well. Uh, and um, I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks for chatting it, uh, to me today, Roger. Yeah, great, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. And we were speaking there with Roger Anthony Essig, a psychedelic virtual reality artist who spoke at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image as part of the Alice in Wonderland exhibition uh, on Tuesday night. And if you want to head along to that exhibition, it is on until the 7th of October this year, 10am till 5pm weekdays, 9.30am until 5.30pm weekends, $25 for full price, $21 for concession, uh, members are $20, $16 for children and $65 for family. If you want more information, acmi.net.au. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR. Martin Martini on In Psychedelia. And this is just about the end of the show. Next week is uh, the 3CR Radiothon special. Please do, to, uh, do tune in from 2pm uh, next week. But there are uh, Radiothon things going on for the whole week. Uh, if you want to donate, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate is the website. Uh, and you can find uh, on there the Encyclopedia Give Now page uh, where you can donate anytime during the week or donate during the show next week. Uh, 
You can also phone 94198377 and all of this goes towards keeping 3CR on the air for the next year. Very expensive to run a radio station. Uh, $250,000 is what we're uh, looking to raise over the next week. So please do help out and help out any show that you uh, are a fan of. I, I recommend if you're a fan of Encyclopedia and you're a fan of another show, just like maybe 80-20, 80 to Encyclopedia, 20% to, to the other show. So, uh, And Emily, thank you for uh, joining in the studio today as well. Thank you for having me. And for the news story. Um, <laughs> and Queering the Air is up next. Uh, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon. See you later. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.